I would never be in any other type of venture capital. I have this very strong altruistic streak that's been important to me that I follow that. I'm here, yes, to make money for my investors, but I wouldn't have done software or semiconductors just to be in the venture capital world. I wanted to do clean energy, and it's been so satisfying. Welcome to episode five of Climate Positive, a podcast produced by Hannon Armstrong, a leading investor in climate solutions. I'm Chad Reed. I'm Hilary Langer. I'm Gil Jenkins. In this series, we host candid conversations with the leaders, innovators, and changemakers driving our climate positive future. In this episode, we speak with the wise and wonderful Nancy Floyd, who is the founder and managing director of the venture capital firm Nth Power, and also a new member of Hannon Armstrong's board of directors. Throughout the discussion, Nancy offers a number of insights on the cleantech venture spaces past, present, and future. She also provides plain-spoken advice on topics such as effective board service, what makes a good pitch, and a good business plan, from a perspective of someone who reads thousands of these each year. Nancy also makes time to talk about the political arena, how the traits she developed in competitive ski racing and tennis help her in the venture world, and much, much more. Her passion for clean energy is infectious, and that's no doubt why she's been such a great leader in what we refer to as climate tech investing. So with that, here is Gil Jenkins in conversation with Nancy Floyd. Welcome to Climate Positive, Nancy. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to have you on. So let's start with a little bit about Nth Power, which you founded as one of the first venture capital firms focusing on clean energy way back in 1993. What compelled you to do that? And what's kept you going as the landscape has changed so much over the years? The idea for Nth Power actually came when I was part of the founding team of a company on the unregulated side of Pacific Telesis. This was one of the big telecom companies. And it was right at the point of deregulation of the telecommunications industry. And because I had run a company before, the CEO of Pacific Telesis had me sit through all of these meetings of what businesses should we go into on the unregulated side of our business? And I saw the difference that technology made actually in disrupting the landscape. And this was not technology that was developed by Bell Labs, you know, from inside the big telecommunications companies. These were little companies that were getting funded through friends and family. And, you know, the venture business was young, but it was still there. And I thought, boy, if there's an industry that really needs new technology it's the energy industry. Because up until then, all of my experience had been working with utilities, and then I became a wind developer. So energy is what I really knew the best. And that was in like 85 and 86. And it took until 93 when I was running, I started a technology practice for a utility consulting firm, that the time seemed right. There had been federal legislation passed that further deregulated the electric utility industry. And I had hired somebody who was a real technologist, a guy by the name of Maurice Gunderson. And he and I decided that we were going to start a fund because we were already doing work for utilities to help them find technologies that they were concerned we're going to disrupt their business. And we decided let's not be on the side of the utilities. Let's be on the side of the little companies because they're the ones that really needed funding. 
and we actually had to buy the practice I started from this utility consulting firm. We went out to raise our first fund, and let me tell you, it was not for the faint of heart. We visited 197 investors around the world. I mean, we counted it, and nine signed up. We raised $65 million, which is small, but ended up being very impactful, but it took us three years with no pay. Out of that fund, we invested in 14 companies. We had four IPOs, two M&A transactions, so it was a very successful fund. So the next fundraise for the second fund was a lot easier. Still not easy, but a lot easier because it was still a very young category. And the thesis behind investing in, we called it then new energy technologies, which then became clean technologies, which has now become climate technology, has really changed radically. In the 90s, it was all about utility deregulation. And utilities were looking for market differentiating products and services. And, you know, no surprise, out of the nine investors that we had, eight of them were strategic investors, which included Electricity de France, included Duke Energy. It included one pension fund, which was the National Pension Fund of Sweden, because they had already been through deregulation of the electric utility industry. And they saw the opportunities that were coming out of deregulation. But then you move into the 2000s with our second fund, and it was all about energy supply. And this is when big generalist funds jumped in to invest in this sector. And they saw that there were 3 billion people in the world that didn't have access to modern energy. So big market opportunity, deep technology, and most of the money, two-thirds of the money went to either next-generation solar or biofuels. And that lasted about a decade. And then there was a sort of brief moment of you know, focus on customers getting engaged with energy. And so you saw a lot of investment in smart devices like thermostats, you know, customer engagement portals. But then that has now led into this next wave of climate tech, which I think is terrific because climate wasn't even part of the discussion in the 90s or really even in the early 2000s. And so now this next wave is, in my mind, the perfect time to be starting a fund. I've congratulated a number of founders of new funds who happen to have been associates at clean tech funds in the 2000s. I I knew them, in some cases mentored them, and said, you know, congratulations. They've raised big amounts of money. And I said, gee, I wish I was founding Nth Power now instead of 29 years ago, because, I mean, there's no turning back. It's the perfect time. But you were taking a leap of faith. I mean, I, I think I read somewhere that, what was there, like maybe 50 million invested in what you call clean energy around that time? Yes, yes. And then what what is it today, roughly? It's kind of gone up and down. So we went from less than 50 million being invested in the early 90s to It peaked at a billion dollars in 99, 2000. And then it peaked again at $11 billion in like 2009, 2010. It dipped a little bit. I actually don't know what the number is now with these new funds. But at at one point, it was one of the largest sectors in venture capital. 
maybe 2008 through 11. Yeah, exactly. I have to ask you this as a communicator, the semantics. So you said it was new energy tech before, then sort of clean tech into the late 90s and 2000s, green tech as well, maybe clean web in between, and now we're squarely right. in climate tech. Yep. Do you think that evolution in semantics is sort of intentional? Do any of these terms that are still interchangeably used carry a headache with them? Or, or does any of this sort of matter in the grand scheme of things? Well, it, it definitely matters. I mean, messaging definitely matters. And I think, well, first of all, there were a lot of failures in this period in the mid-2000s where people were investing in next-generation solar and biofuels. And it brought a bad name to clean tech. Many of these investments were very capital intensive, required hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars. I would argue that's not a venture capital deal. But the reason they required so much money is that they needed to use venture capital to build out their manufacturing plants. And probably half of these big deals failed outright. And so a lot of the big generalist funds who jumped into clean tech or green tech pulled out. And so I think clean tech got a, a very bad name. Climate tech, it sends a very important message that, in fact, our focus is on climate, that climate is the market driver. And I think investors are interested in putting their money behind climate-focused funds. There's been a big surge of interest. I think you referenced it briefly, but could you share with our listeners your sort of formative entrepreneurial experience founding NFC Energy in the 80s, which was one of the first wind development firms? It's an interesting story. I was not prepared to be an entrepreneur. I was recruited to come join a group of guys that were in real estate that had leased some land in Altamont Pass. And I moved from the East Coast to San Francisco, not knowing a soul in 1982. And I quickly, because I started my career as a regulator, so I understood regulation. I fairly quickly, and I say quickly, over nine months, negotiated the first what they call non-standard contract with PG&E to buy power from our wind farms. And it was worth millions of dollars. And it ultimately became the standard. They called it standard offer number four. It was a very favorable, very favorable contract for wind. And I realized at the time during that nine months that my partners who had significant real estate holdings weren't funding the company properly. And we also didn't see eye to eye, frankly, on business values. So I went back east. I raised a couple hundred thousand dollars, bought them out. And there I was, CEO of a company, not even knowing like how to budget, (laughs) you know, how to forecast. And I just was a sponge and, you know, took help where I could. We ultimately developed uh, $30 million worth of wind farms, vertical axis. I chose the vertical axis wind turbines for a reason. I thought I thought that was a very good choice at the time. I mean, it was definitely plowing new ground. You know, I was literally out in the hills with rattlesnake guards that my farmers gave me because I didn't realize there were rattlesnakes out there, nor did I realize as I was digging the anemometer controls out of the ground that there were scorpions. <laughs> 
And, you know, doing everything, uh, going before the planning commissions, you know, to get wind turbines permitted. They were afraid that these turbines were along a major freeway, you know, were they going to distract drivers? Anyway, it was really cowboy days, but we ultimately developed $30 million with the wind farms. And I ended up selling the company to a much larger developer in 1985. I saw that the tax credits were expiring and to stay in business, I would have to be vertically integrated, meaning I would have to manufacture wind turbines. And I wasn't prepared to do that, but I did very well. I generated, I say 25 times invested capital, but actually it was a lot more than that. When you see the wind industry today, are you amazed at the scale or was it what you always expected? No, I couldn't have imagined. I mean, I saw, I forget what the size was. Maybe it was a hundred kilowatts. It was the Westinghouse early, what they called the Mod 1. But I cannot believe these turbines and they're so beautiful. They're just beautiful. And I'm also getting very excited about the potential for offshore wind because obviously there you've got steadier winds. It's more baseload power. And I'm amazed. I never, I never could have imagined. I mean, these were 30 kilowatt machines. (laughs) Wow. I want to turn a little bit to, I think by my count, correct me if I'm wrong, you've served on more than a dozen private company boards Mm-hmm. at least half a dozen nonprofit boards, mm-hmm. and five public company boards, at least, including Hannah Armstrong, which we're thrilled that you joined earlier this year. That's a lot of board experience. So are there kind of lessons learned on effective board service from that rich experience over the years? And then in talking about that, could you also share your perspective on the critical importance of diversity in the boardroom? First, being on a public company board is very different than being on a private company board or a nonprofit board. My private company board experience has been largely where I've been a major investor in the company. And you really get very granular in terms of strategy and financings. And, you know, I'm chairman of one of my boards right now where I'm literally on the phone with the CEO every single day. That is not the case with a public company board. It really took me a year to learn this. I I think the first rule is to listen and learn because it does take a long time to understand the business, to understand the dynamics of the board, to understand the corporate culture. And our role is not to micromanage, you know, our role is not to manage in any way. Our role is to govern. And that's very different. That's a level up above from the kind of board service I did on my nonprofit and private company boards. And so, you know, my lessons learned are listen and learn, over-prepare, like really read your board materials carefully. And these board materials are very lengthy. I forget. 400 pages. 400 (laughs) pages. And they could be longer. I mean, some of my um, board books were up to 800 pages. And then add value with every comment that you make. Don't just try to take up airtime. In terms of diversity on boards, so when I went on the board of WGL Holdings, which was the holding company for Washington Gas, the natural gas utility that serves D.C., Virginia, and Maryland, 
was very interesting. I loved that board. I actually enjoyed being on that company board. I was recruited for a very specific reason. The company wanted to invest $100 million a year over five years, so $500 million, to build a clean energy portfolio. And they wanted somebody with my background. And in fact, I was the first director in its 120-year life that didn't live in their service territory. When I went on the board, I was the second woman. By the time I transitioned off the board, almost 10 years later, there were four women and three people of color. And the conversation changed so dramatically from being kind of clubby, and I don't mean that disrespectfully, okay, but kind of clubby to being much more thoughtful. I mean, you could see the difference that diverse backgrounds and opinions brought to the board. And I think we were just a much more effective board. And in fact, we we did win a lot of awards for diversity. Our stock performed extremely well. I know lots of studies have tied board diversity to stock performance. I don't know that it's how directly it's tied to, except that, you know, you've got a diversity of opinions that you're expressing in front of management. So it makes a big difference. And that's I'm thrilled that we have diversity on the Hand and Armstrong board. I'm very proud of that. I read that you read about a thousand business plans a year. Right. What do the best ones have in common? The best ones, and let me say, sometimes you spend five minutes on a business plan and you put it in the past pile. Yeah. So- What the best business plans have is a very compelling and succinct executive summary. And then the second thing that we look at is management team. And based on that, we'll either put it in the pile that is a pass or we'll put it in the pile that says we're going to read more. And every business plan has that. And management, by the way, is the most important section. And and lots of people have said this before, but I'll repeat this. I'd rather have a B-plus idea and an A-management team than an A-rated idea and a B-plus management team. Management is just critical to success. And I I think I also read that you really get into the psychology in the pitch with how the CEO acts or the founder acts with others. Can you talk a little bit about that? Oh, it's so interesting. So we bring a company in to pitch us. And it's very interesting to watch the dynamic of the team, the pitching company's team, and the dynamic between that team and us. And so if you have a company that comes in, you've got the CEO, and maybe you've got the CTO and one other, and if the CEO does all the talking, that's a red flag for sure. I've had a CEO where I asked a difficult question, literally leap across the board table to like try to almost throttle me. And (laughs) I'm not exaggerating. Uh. I'm not exaggerating. And so, you know, you're also trying to see, that was an extreme case. I mean, you're, you're trying to see if you can really work with these people. And by the way, I also tell companies that come into pitch that not only are we diligencing them, they should diligence us because a company's board is very important, whether you're a private company or a public company. And the dynamic between the board and management team 
is really critical. And if that dynamic isn't working, it's it's not a pretty picture and it's not healthy for the company. Let's crystal ball here a bit. I looked at the list of all the technologies of the companies you've invested in, and it's a long one. What is most exciting to you right now from a clean tech standpoint? And are there any sort of related trends to that that you're anticipating over the next five years, let's say to 2030? The areas that I find interesting are, obviously there's a lot of continued work in energy storage, which is, which is critical. It's critical for electric vehicles. It's critical for having solar and storage at your home. And so there's a lot of work going on there. There's a lot of work going on in carbon capture. Obviously, there's a lot of work going on in the area of mobility. And then in clean materials, if by clean materials, we're talking about as companies have made these pledges to be carbon net neutral, they have to look into their supply chain. They have to look at how their products are made. And so whether their products are made from recycled materials, whether they are materials that actually can be used for carbon capture, I think the clean materials area is is a bit of a sleeper, one that we actually invested in, in our fourth fund. And we made three investments. One, we lost all of our money. And two, we got our money back and some, but it was just too early. People didn't really care. I think the time is right for that. In preparation for the show, you told me that you're both a competitive downhill ski racer. I was, and I, I yes. assume it was, okay. <laughs> and an equally ferocious tennis player. Yeah. What do you think is true in both of those sports that you hold dear and how you think about your approach to venture capital investing? Well, you know, both sports are individual sports, right? But there's definitely a team element, particularly in tennis. So I was captain of my high school and college tennis teams. And of course, in tennis, you can play doubles. And as captain, I mean, I really tried to, I guess that was one of my first leadership tests, right? was trying to really create a team spirit. And I'll just tell you a a funny story. So my last year in college... I had started the tennis team actually at my college and because I was one of the first women's classes and I raised money to go do a tour during spring break. And we played University of Virginia, Duke, William and Mary. I mean, some really great University of North Carolina. I mean, big colleges, top tier tennis teams. And we lost every single match. Oh no. Oh no. (laughs) And so, you know, what I thought was going to really bring our game up could have really brought us down. But in fact, you know, we used it as a real learning experience and our skills actually did come up as a result of playing those really top tier teams. But back to your question about how it applies to ventures. So they're both individual sports and skiing in particular has a lot of, the pressure's all on you, but there's a lot of feel to the sport. And where I view venture as very much a team activity. You know, it's a, it's a team within your venture capital firm because, you know, you're inevitably all of your companies are going to hit a speed bump along the way. So you're looking to your partners for advice on how to help them over that speed bump. It's really a relationship business and one where you have to feel your way through the situation. And, you know, in skiing, it's a lot about feel making decisions 
literally on the fly and you may be literally on the fly. And so while it's not obvious that as individual sports, it applies to what I view as a team profession in venture, there are elements that do apply to venture, the ability to pivot, the ability to make really quick decisions. What about the, risk? I mean, just comfort oh, with well, that's risk, true. Right? Yeah, well, I mean, the, oh my gosh. At least with risk. the skiing, right. For skiing, for skiing, the risk, absolutely. I mean, you're literally on the verge of being out of control if you're going to be good. And literally you win by hundreds of a second. It's a pretty amazing sport. Let's talk about the political arena. You had what was certainly an incredible opportunity to speak at the 2008 Democratic National Convention in Denver. What was it like to talk to 20,000 people in a hall about the clean energy economy and certainly millions more on TV? Well, let me say it was surreal. It was exciting. And there were some elements of my speaking that made it really special. First, I got a phone call a week before I was going to speak that asked if I would speak on clean energy in the economy. So not much time to prep. I asked a couple of questions. I was going to be teamed with Al Gore's former speechwriter. And I said, well, I will only do this if I can speak in my words, because I'm not a politician. And they agreed to that. So I sent in a draft. I had four minutes. By the way, Bill Clinton had five minutes. <laughs> I also spoke in prime time. A prime time, speakers. right? Prime time. A few speakers before Hillary too, right? Before Hillary, Right. And so we went back and forth on this four-minute speech, which uh, was going to be put into a teleprompter. So I arrive uh, the morning the morning of the speech. I had to go to training, and they were going to train me to use a teleprompter. I'd never used a teleprompter before. And there was the speechwriter, and there were you know there was this crusty old guy from Boston, and I grew up in Boston, who was going to teach me how to use the teleprompter, and. You can use a teleprompter standing, you know, if you're just looking straight at it. But then there is a trick to turning to the side, which I never perfected. Anyway, they had loaded the old version of my speech in. And thank goodness I brought the new version of my speech in. And they wanted me to say things like they wanted to reference Nixon, you know, which I said, that's a downer, you know, or they wanted me to talk about. They wanted to talk about Nixon? Yeah. Well, they wanted me to bash him or bash Bush and, you know talk about oil sheiks. And I said, no, no, no. And we had agreed on this new wording. So finally, finally, I got them to put the new wording in. And then the appointed hour, I was escorted underneath the, in the, what they call the waiting room or the green room where they do hair and makeup and all that. I had been told, by the way, that when you get out there, most of the delegates will not be paying attention. And that what you're really doing is not talking to the 20,000 delegates in the convention center. You're going to be talking to the 10 million people who are watching it on television. And so, you know, the couple of hints they give you is, you know, don't try to talk above the din in the convention hall, because otherwise you'll be viewed as screeching to the television audience. And then also I had to limit my gestures to like a, if you could imagine, just a square. So I can't raise my hand or, you know, my fist because that meant I was like a candidate. Or I couldn't outstretch my arms because they said the cameras would cut off the end of my <laughs> my hands. So I had very limited movements that I could do. But obviously I'm a little nervous. This is the biggest audience I've ever spoken to. I mean, meaning television audience. I had done some live television. But walking out there, 
it was amazing. I mean, I just was walking out and, you know, there's Wolf Blitzer and there's, you know, there's Brian Williams, you know, and I just had this moment of calm and I just delivered the speech and they were right for about the first half of the speech. Nobody was really listening, but by the second half of the speech, they were actually paying attention and four minutes went by very, very quickly, but it was exciting. It was surreal. And the end is when I walked off, I had, you know, all these texts, but the first thing I did was I called my boys and my youngest one said, Bob, I know where I get my, I know where I get my acting skills from. (laughs) My oldest, my oldest son said, he said, so how did I do? And he said, meh. Oh, classic. (laughs) Staying in the political arena for a moment, what do you think elected officials get wrong about clean energy? What they get wrong time after time is that they think that a transition to a new energy economy is going to cause us to lose jobs as opposed to seeing the job creation opportunity that it is. And it has been. And I think one of the reasons that their politicians are coming around is they have seen the number of clean energy jobs that have been created and they're good paying jobs. And now obviously we have an administration in office that views climate as economic risk as, I mean, you know, it's just, it's a climate forward administration in both Biden's economic team, energy team, the political climate is much more favorable, and hopefully we're going to get some favorable legislation out of this. But I, but but time and time again, you know, I think they've been stuck in their ways, and even still, you know, we're going to lose those coal jobs. Well, guess what? There are a lot of good jobs that can replace the coal jobs. It's proven. State of California has created a lot of jobs. Oregon, I think, created 130,000 clean energy jobs, and it's just going to grow. Do you think sometimes, though, there's a trap to just talk about and we love wind and solar and wind and solar jobs and you know fastest growing occupations, no question, hundreds of thousands of people. But when you think of the 3 million clean energy jobs, a lot of those are energy efficiency jobs, electrician. And you know, I sometimes when I hear the rhetoric, which I think is important and effective, I wish they would mention those electrician blue collar jobs as well. But- Absolutely. And there are, I mean, there are a lot of blue collar jobs, probably more blue collar jobs than others. I mean, because obviously you have also electricians for wind projects, right? And yep. solar projects. And it's, you know, it's created also a lot of small businesses. You know, we're just putting some new solar on our roof, you know, and I didn't go to the big guys. <laughs> the best solar installers that I interviewed were former roofing companies, you know, or their roofing companies and solar. I mean, these are companies that have added to their product line. So you know, it's blue collar jobs. It's, it's the growth of small business. It's a great opportunity across the board. When you're talking to young people today, and clearly this generation, anyone sort of under 35, it's clear there's a real passion for, for clean energy and, and climate solutions broadly. What do you tell those folks who want to get in the field? I tell them, first of all, my career has been the most exciting, unplanned career <laughs> that I could imagine. And it has, you know, I mean, the bulk of it's been in clean energy and that there are jobs for every interest, 
whether you're in marketing and communications, whether you're in research, whether you're an engineer, and it is a growing field. This is not a dying field. And so you just don't know where your career is going to take you because it is constantly changing and growing. And it's also a career where you can make an impact. And there's nothing more satisfying. It's what's made me, I mean, you know, I would never tell my investors this. I would would never be in any other type of venture capital. You know, I have this very strong altruistic streak. And that's been important to me that I follow that. I'm here, yes, to make money for my investors. But I wouldn't have done, you know, software or semiconductors just to be in the venture capital world. I wanted to do clean energy. And it's been so satisfying. That really resonates with me. Well said, Nancy. So we're almost done here, but it is our tradition in Climate Positive where we'd like to ask our guests a series of rapid-fire lightning round questions. And because these are candid conversations with a climate theme, we call this the hot seat. So for the first question, if you're ready, I'll ask you to fill in the blank on the following statement. The most important advice you've followed was? Humility. Be respectful. Look for the best in everyone. And the most important advice or feedback you've rejected? Sell yourself. Be larger than life. There are a few of those types in the venture on, yes, Sand, Hill, on Sand Hill yes, Road, there right? Are. Uh-huh. <laughs> yep. Okay. These next few are agree or disagree. Bitcoin incentivizes renewable energy. It should. Not yet, but it should. Carbon offsets are a distraction from the real business of cutting emissions. Yes. Why? I think it gives companies the opportunity to meet their pledges without doing the hard work. Awesome. Overrated or underrated? And I have many technologies I'm just going to rip through here. Okay. And hopefully I don't get you in trouble if you're invested in any of these or or considering. (laughs) But... uh, Overrated or underrated? Green hydrogen. Underrated. Carbon capture and storage. Underrated. Advanced small modular reactors or SMRs. I'm going to have to say underrated because we kind of need all of this. Yeah. Concentrated solar power. Underrated. Solar pavement or roadways. Overrated. Waste to energy. Underrated. Distributed wind? Underrated. Tidal energy? Underrated. Which one did I forget? Uh, Certainly uh, clean materials, right? Clean materials. Underrated. You split your time between San Francisco and Oregon. Which state has the better produce? I would say Oregon. And right now I'm in Oregon and we are in the very short, like three-week season of Oregon strawberries, which are the best, the small, super sweet, especially the hood variety. And they are so fragile. They last about two days once you've bought them and they are amazing. Amazing. Okay. Last one, Nancy, another finish the sentence. To me, climate positive means. For me, it's more from maybe a a technology perspective It is solar on every feasible roof and lots of offshore wind. Well, that sounds good to me, Nancy. Thank you for doing this. 
it was really fun to talk to a fellow Oregonian and an awesome new <laughs> board member. When I got into clean tech around 2008 or nine, I knew you by reputation. I was in San Francisco and I've followed your career with great interest since that time. So appreciate all your leadership in our space and for being a risk taker and a kind soul. And it was wonderful to get to know you a little bit better through our podcast. Thanks so much. I really enjoyed doing this and I'm thrilled to be on the board of Hannon Armstrong. Climate Positive is produced by Hannon Armstrong and David Benjamin Sound. If you like what you heard today, please share the show with a friend and leave us a comment and rating on our show page. You can send us show and guest suggestions by tweeting at us at Hannon Armstrong or reach us via email at climatepositive at I'm Chad Reed and this is Climate Positive.